be in the book of Ephesians today, the book of Ephesians and the second chapter. But before we open up God's word together, I'd like us to just bow one more time for a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we've been blessed today as we've sung songs of worship as we've come into your presence here as, as your body to sing your praises, to lift up glory to your name. And Lord, it is our goal that throughout this service that you continue to get all of that glory, that all praise and honor be lifted high to you. We thank you that we've been able to celebrate communion together. And now we're gonna open up your word together, Father, and we wait expectantly upon you to speak to us. Lord, every one of us today are unworthy recipients of your grace. Every one of us today absolutely depend upon your grace. So may we just be able to see it in a fresh way and And may we leave here today rejoicing at the unmerited favor we have received from you. And my prayer is that not only would we take it in with thankful hearts, but then that we would show it to others as we interact with them, as we live with them, We go to church with them. So God, teach our hearts today and let your Holy Spirit have his perfect work in our lives. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Last week, we began a short series that we're calling The Five Solas. If you weren't here last week, I'll just give you a, a recap. The Five Solas are five points that came out of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, 500 years ago. This is the, the 500th anniversary of when Martin Luther, a, a German monk, nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, October 31st, 1517. And Protestants have celebrated that as the beginning of the Reformation. Really, the seeds were planted before him with men like John Wycliffe and John Huss and William Tyndale. But things really erupted with this fiery German. And as the Reformation began to spread throughout Europe, some of these things rose to the top as the key issues of the Reformation. And so the Protestant the Protestant proclamation from the, out of the Reformation were these things. In, in, in Latin, they're sola scriptura, scripture alone. That's what we looked at last week. Sola gratia, grace alone. That's what we're going to look at today. And faith alone, Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. History is important, and it's, it's important to understand how we got here, who we are as believers, as Protestant Christians, and so we want to look at the second, the second foundation that undergirded the Protestant Reformation today, sola gratia. 
As Luther was debating and, and opening up scriptures and was coming to an understanding of the word of God, he began to see that the salvation that we have is only by God's grace. And he was engaged in a, in a debate, an ongoing debate with a humanist by the name of Erasmus. Erasmus insisted that there was some innate goodness in man that we contributed to our salvation, that we brought to the table, so to speak. And Luther insisted, and he wrote a book called The Bondage of the Will, where he, he proclaimed clearly that it is only by God's grace that we can come into a saving relationship with him, not by anything that, that we have to offer. Grace alone. I'll never forget my first job when I was in high school. I was a grocery store clerk, and uh, I paid a whopping $4.85 an hour, and uh, I, in exchange, I unloaded trucks that came in, I stocked shelves, I bagged groceries and carried groceries out to, out to people's cars, and, um, and, and eventually I, I moved up the ladder and I was able to work in the little video store that we had there and, and uh, really hit the top tier as I uh, began to be a, a checkout clerk and could ring up groceries. And uh, I, I, re- I still remember one of the, and this is just a a weird little thing I'm sharing with you. Uh, one, of the, one of my favorite jobs, especially at the end of the day when we were getting, getting you know, the, the, most of the work had been done, we were just kind of waiting out the last few shoppers, uh, one of the busy work tasks that they would give us was to uh, face the, the, the grocery items. So what you'd have to do is pull everything to the front of the, the shelves. You wanted to make, the idea was to make the shelves look full and pretty. And so you want to make sure that all the, all the fronts of the packages were facing out towards the customers. And so I took this job seriously. I had fun with it. And, and my favorite thing to, to organize was the cat food section. I don't know why, because I like neither cats nor cat food. But I would line up all these little kitty faces on all the nine live cans. And for whatever reason, I got a simple joy out of making sure that all the kitty faces lined up uh, row by row by row. I enjoyed that job. We had build relationships, would have fun with the, the, my fellow workers. The, the most memorable night, though, it was getting close to closing time. And you know, the strangest things happen at closing time. And uh, we had, like almost every retail business, a sign on, our, on, the, on the door as you come in that says, no shirt, no shoes, no service. It didn't say anything about pants. <laughs> and I remember there was only a couple of us working in the store at this point of the night, almost 10 o'clock at night, and one of the, the cashiers said, Jeremiah, you got to see this, aisle five. I said, what? She's like, just walk past, just nonchalant-like. So I walked by, and there was a man wearing shoes. He had a shirt on, sans pants. He was in his briefs, standing there, selecting whatever grocery items. Now, none of us knew what to do. I've learned since then it's best to just not confront people like that. You just... You just let it play out, let the man buy his groceries, and just move forward. And that's what we did. I figured, you don't confront a guy in his underwear out in public. It's just nothing good could come out. We didn't have any weapons. I'll never forget that. But, you know, I'd go in, and I'd, I'd do my job. I'd face those cat food cans and 
checkout videos and carry groceries to the car. And at the end of the week, I'd, I'd get my paycheck. And when you're in high school, man, a paycheck is just the greatest thing in the world. It's, it's so wonderful because you look at that thing and you think, I earned this. I went and worked for this. I gave up, you know, my friends are out playing and playing sports and doing this or that. And I went and sacrificed my time and I went and worked for this. This money is mine, my hard-earned cash. I share that illustration with you because it has absolutely nothing to do with the grace of God. When you go to work and your employer pays you, you've earned those wages. But every one of us here today has unbelievable riches that we do not deserve, that we have not earned, we have not merited, God was under no obligation to give them to us. They are ours solely because God has favored us with them. Many of our poets and songwriters have captured the awe they have with the grace of God. Just last week, we sang a beautiful rendition of amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. The great hymn writers Isaac Watts and Charles Wesley also wrote on this theme. Watts reflected on love so amazing, so divine. Wesley, who seems to have written virtually a hymn a day, taught the church to sing the words, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Much later, Charles Gabriel confessed, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And a virtually unknown hymn by African pastor Emmanuel T. Sibomana reminds us that the grace of God amazes me. We can never reflect too much upon God's grace. And as we look at Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to see just how abundant his grace really is. Please follow along as we read the first 10 verses of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the second chapter. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
If you're taking notes this morning, the first thing I want us to see from this passage is that God's grace extends to sinners. God's grace extends to sinners. That may be a a no-brainer. If you've grown up in the church, you, you may say, of course, I'm a sinner and I need God's grace. But there are days when our pride takes over and we think we're not all that bad after all. This passage makes it clear that we truly were. He's speaking to Christians, and so that's why he uses the past tense. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And this is what he says about us. He says, you followed the course of this world. Your goals, your mindset, your desires were in alignment with the things and the values of the world. He says, we followed the prince of the power of the air. He's speaking there of Satan. You may not have ever signed on the dotted line to be a Satan follower, to be a Satanist, but if we were in line with the principles of the world, we were in line with the prince of the power of the air. That is, that is Satan, whether we realize it or not. He says, that, that's, that's where your life was heading. He says that you lived in the passions of your flesh, This doesn't mean that you always followed through on every sinful impulse you had. None of us were ever as bad as we could be. But in general, our lives followed sinful passions. He said, you carried out the desires of the body in in, in the mind. And by nature, we were children of wrath. These things were true of us whether we realized how bad it was or not. Mark McKinn puts it this way. He says, part of our mess is not knowing that we are a mess. I have no interest in being a a Debbie Downer this morning. But so much of the self-help mumbo-jumbo that's out there today tells you and me how special and amazing we are. And that all that we need to do to succeed is just believe in our unbelievable selves and we can do anything. And God says, no, that's not true. The scripture says, you and I are unbelievable wrecks apart from Jesus Christ. And that we completely and fully and totally need his grace if we're to accomplish anything worthwhile. God never sugarcoats the truth. Whether we like it or not, God's word speaks truth and brings conviction. And if if you're a child of God, ultimately you and I, we should want to hear truth. Isn't it wonderful when God gifts you with a friend who can speak truth into your life? So often our our hearts are proud and and we don't think we're as bad as we really are. And so we, we push those people away. We tune them out. We want the people who are going to say good things about us. That's the station I want to tune into. The people are going to pat me on the back. The Bible says faithful are the wounds of a friend. When we have someone who can speak the truth into our life, even though it stings a little bit, oh, that God would give us humble hearts to hear difficult truths and eyes to see the sin that is in our hearts. God's grace came to us in the worst state imaginable. We were not just struggling 
We were not simply having a bad day. We had not simply lost our own way. The Bible here says that we were dead, dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, I I would not consider myself an expert when it comes to death. I've done some funerals in my day, but I'm I'm by no means an expert in this area. But one thing that I do know is that a dead person does precisely nothing. They have nothing to bring to the table. And, and spiritually speaking, that was us. The Bible says we were, we were dead. Dead, dead. Lifeless. No spiritual life in us. And that's when God came to us and saved us. In fact, the Bible teaches us that his grace began to come to us even before we had been born, even before the foundations of the earth. If you just go over to the previous chapter, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God's love came to us in his electing love even before the foundations of the world. God's grace has come to us as sinners. I want to tell you this morning that Jesus came to save sinners. And maybe you're here today and you're on one end of the spectrum thinking, I'm not that bad. I've really never done anything that's that big of a deal. But maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum and you think, if anybody knew what I have done, if the people around me knew what was in my heart, there would be nobody sitting with me in my section. They would not sit at my table afterwards when we gather together to eat. I would have no friends if they knew what was in my heart. No matter what end of the spectrum that you may tend to struggle with, the pride that says I'm not that bad, or really it's another form of pride that says I'm just too bad, God's grace meets both of you and says that there is no one beyond the reach of God's love. That's what the reformers so vehemently defended. That that we have nothing that we can bring to the table. And that's what makes God's grace so beautiful. Is that he saves sinners. The second thing I want you to see from this passage is that God's grace flows from his character. Verse 4 says that God, being rich in mercy, that it's, it's an attribute of who he is. God, who is the God who is rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he's loved us, and verse 5 goes on to say that we have been made alive. That flows out of God's character, out of his very nature. Did you ever get a nickname when you were growing up? 
I won't, I won't ask for anybody to volunteer some of their embarrassing nicknames that you might have had, but usually a nickname relates to something you've done or maybe how you look or how you act. I was reading this week about some of the great baseball nicknames. For whatever it is, for whatever reason, baseball has just always been synonymous with some very, very good nicknames. And some of these, these athletes, I don't know, but I imagine that they had to... They had to, these nicknames had to relate to things that they had done, like Fred Bonehead Merkel, or Bunyan's Becker. Ted Williams was known as the Splendid Splinter. Brooks Robinson was the Human Vacuum Cleaner. There was Jim Catfish Hunter, Walt No Neck Williams, Gary the Rat Gaietti. There are so many good nicknames out there, and often our nicknames kind of flow out of who we are or something we've done. Well, God has told us, the Bible tells us that God is the God whose one of his names is the one who is rich in mercy. In fact, Peter tells us, Peter, Peter refers to him as the God of all grace in 1 Peter 5.10. The God of all grace. That's what he's known as. Not as the God who is stingy with grace. Not as the God who shows grace only on Sundays when you're dressed up and looking good and, and behaving yourself. But he's the God of all grace. Like everything that is good. James tells us this. Every good and perfect gift flows from above. Everything that is good that happens in your life and mine is, is an overflow of God's grace. That's pretty amazing. He is the God who is always gracious. All goodness flows from him. Even when it seems like when you read passages of the Old Testament where he's punishing sin, or even maybe in your own life where he's chastising you and correcting you and disciplining you, it all flows from his grace, his unmerited, undeserving love. Our God is unbelievably rich in mercy. And he demonstrates this, not because we deserve it, but because of who he is. Sometimes as parents, you make a choice to do something nice for your kids, even though they've been little snots that day. And you think in your mind, they didn't deserve this. They've done this, and they've not done this, and they've disobeyed here. But you decide, at the end of the day, that you're taking them out for ice cream. It was not because of any innate goodness in them. It was not because today they measured up and now you're rewarding them. But it's because you've chosen to be gracious to them. Now, if you're like me, that only happens as a parent once every now and then. I'm usually about justice. Let's give them what they deserve. I'm so glad that God our Father is not like this. Every day he is a God of grace. Even when difficult times come. Even when the unexpected happens, God is still being gracious to us, walking with us in those trials. I mean, even the context of this 1 Peter 5 verse says, even after you've suffered for a little while, he's talking about these Christians who are being persecuted for their faith and hated on, in danger of their lives. And he says, I want you to know that the God of grace is still right here in the middle of this, even though stuff is happening, awful, awful stuff. The God of all grace is right here, right in the middle of it. 
And he's going to restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. Our God is a God of all grace. The third thing I want us to see here is that God's grace makes us alive. God's grace makes us alive. Verse 5 says, even when you were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You remember the story of Lazarus? Not the Lazarus we mentioned last week. There's, there's two Lazaruses in the Bible. There's the rich man and Lazarus. We mentioned that story last week. But there's the story in John 11 of, of Jesus' friend Lazarus and his sisters Mary and Martha. They figure prominently into the, the stories of the Gospels. Lazarus died, right? Jesus could have gotten there in time to heal him while he was still sick, but he didn't out of his own choice, and so he arrives and Lazarus is dead. And after some conversations with Mary and Martha, Jesus goes to the grave. Was there anything that Lazarus could do about his condition? No. Was there anything that anyone else there could do about his condition? His sisters loved him very, very much. If they could have done something, they would. But in this situation, everybody else was powerless because Lazarus was dead. Lazarus did not come forth until Jesus spoke to him. Jesus was the one who gave him life. And that's what the Bible says happened with us spiritually. This verse says, you were made alive even when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. There's not one of us who could have fixed our spiritual state on our own. No matter how resourceful you are, no matter how disciplined you are, no matter how pious you were, the Bible says we needed to be made alive in order to be able to have a relationship with Christ. I didn't put these verses on the screen, but there are several passages that demonstrate this. In Acts chapter 16, verse 14, Acts 16, 14, the Bible tells us about a woman named Lydia. She was from the city of Thyatira. She was a seller of purple goods. She was a worshiper of God. And this passage says, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. God graciously gave her eyes to see and ears to hear. Scripture tells us that in, in 1 Corinthians, I think, chapter 3, that a natural man doesn't receive the things of God. They're foolishness to him. Have you ever been sharing Jesus with somebody? And either A, maybe they, they looked at you just with a blank stare, or maybe B, they got kind of angry. Like, this is ridiculous. Who believes this stuff? Nobody. We live in the 21st century, and you're still talking about an old book? About a man who died on a cross? What are you talking about? The Bible says for the non-Christian, these are foolish things. But when God opens up our heart, John 6, 44, says that no one can come to him unless the Father who sent me draws him, Jesus said. God initiates the work in our heart to draw us to himself. Our salvation, simply put, this is the last point, our salvation is all of grace. 
There's not one of us who can stand up here and say, but, 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 but. No. We bring nothing to the table here to earn our salvation. There was a large prestigious church in England that had three mission churches under its care. And the first Sunday of every year, all, the, all, all these churches, all four of the churches would gather together and have one big corporate worship celebration. And in those mission churches, which were located in, the, in some of the rough areas of the city, were some outstanding stories of conversions, thieves, murderers, criminals that came to Jesus. And on that day, as they celebrated all together, they, they celebrated communion, they, they came forward to receive communion and on one of these days, the, the pastor looked down and saw a former thief kneeling beside a judge of the Supreme Court in England. In fact, it was the very judge who had sentenced this thief to prison. After his release, this thief had converted and become a follower of Jesus and become very involved in the, in the church. And yet, there they were. The judge and the former convict kneeled together side by side. It almost seemed like uh, neither was aware of the other. And after the service, the judge was walking out with the pastor and said to him, did you notice who was kneeling beside me at the communion rail this morning? And the pastor replied, yes, but I wasn't sure that you had noticed. And the two walked there in silence for a few more moments. And the judge said, what a miracle of grace. The pastor nodded in agreement. Yes, what a marvelous miracle of grace. And the judge looked at him and said, but who, who are you talking about? The pastor said, well, I'm talking about the conversion of this criminal, the convict. And the judge said, oh, I wasn't referring to him. I, I was thinking of myself. I don't understand. You mean this, the pastor? Yes, the judge replied. It, it seems natural that the thief would receive God's grace when he came out of jail. He'd hit rock bottom. He had nothing but a history of crime behind him. And when he saw Jesus as his Savior, he knew that there was salvation and hope and joy for him. He knew just how much he needed help. But look at me. I was taught from the earliest days of my youth to live as a gentleman, that my word was to be my bond, that I was supposed to say my prayers, to go to church, to take communion. I went through Oxford, I got my degrees, was called to the bar, and eventually became a judge. Pastor, it was God's grace that drew me. It was God's grace that opened my heart to receive it. If anything, I'm a greater miracle of God's grace. You know, this room is, is filled from all walks of life. Some of you, maybe you can relate more to the thief. You, you hit rock bottom at some point in your life. You really screwed things up and you made some terrible decisions and it was very plain and evident to you just how sinful you truly were. Others of us have lived a, a, a fairly moral life. We haven't done any major bad things. We've, we've had a good family life, good upbringing, been to church just since we were in diapers and we, we, we could try to bring that pedigree to God and say, look at all the good things I've done. We've come to realize that all those things, as Isaiah tells us, are filthy rags. They don't, they don't get us anywhere with God. And we all come to the table 
to celebrate communion on level ground, absolutely, fully, and completely dependent upon God's grace. If you're a Christian today, it is 100% because of the grace of God. Man has done some pretty amazing things. We've domesticated fire. Mankind has built the jumbo jet, mastered flight. Man has broken the four-minute mile, developed vaccines that have saved millions and millions of lives. Man has conquered Mount Everest, has built the pyramids, created electricity, harnessed electricity, created photography, invented computers, Man has even figured out how to cure many types of cancer. We've been to the moon, for goodness sakes. But no man, no woman, will ever, ever, ever figure out how to save themselves. You and I are completely dependent upon the unearned, unmerited, undeserved favor of God. That's what makes God's grace so beautiful. I want to ask you three questions as we close tonight, this morning. Rather, I didn't preach that long. (laughs) First of all, am I resting in God's grace? I want you to ask yourself this. I mean, really, you know, maybe after we eat, get home and, and, and stop and think about this. Am I resting on the finished work of Jesus Christ today? Or have I slipped back into a kind of a works-based, make-God-happy-with-me lifestyle? It's easy to do because God calls us to live a good life of good works. We didn't even look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. And it's easy to begin thinking, though, that those works are what makes God pleased with me. We should know better. He just got done saying in verses 8 and 9, for by grace you're saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God. All of it's a gift. It's not the result of works. And so God calls us to live for him, but those works are not the basis of our acceptance. You should ask yourself today, am I resting in God's grace or, or did I wake up this morning thinking that God really wasn't all that pleased with me? I had a bad week, lost my temper a few times, had a few impure thoughts, only remember to do my devotions two out of seven days. And, and so I probably lost a little bit of favor with God. I'm sort of on the outs. God calls us to come back to grace and to rest in the fact that he completely and totally accepts us in Jesus Christ. Do I really believe that God unconditionally loves me today, no matter what? Do I base my assurance on how well I perform and obey? Am I resting in God's grace? He wants to set you free from a life of frantic worry and pulling your hair out and trying to measure up. God's grace has already made you to be able to measure up in Christ Jesus. Secondly, are you rejoicing in God's grace? 
as you take time to reflect on God's grace, here's what should happen. You step back and like these hymns that we've mentioned, I stand in awe of the love of God. I'm filled with joy because God loves me? That Jesus would die for me? And the more you reflect and meditate on God's grace, the more that it should come out in worship. Are you rejoicing in God's grace today? And then finally, are you representing God's grace? It's a whole lot easier to talk about it, to sing about it, to sit back and just revel in it, and and, and even to thank him for it. But see, then what's going to happen is eventually you're going to have to leave here. Even if you get seconds and thirds and hang out for a while and help us clean up after we eat today, eventually you've got to leave here. And tomorrow is Monday. And you're going to bump into people that you would prefer not to see. You're going to maybe wake up to people, wake up next to people, people who live under your roof who are kind of hard to live with. And we don't want to talk about how hard you and I are to live with, but how hard these people are to live with. And all of a sudden now, the rubber meets the road and that grace that we're so thankful for is the same grace that God wants us to show to them. Are you representing God's grace? This morning, we declare with the, ref- the reformers that we believe in sola gratia, by grace alone, through no works that I have to offer. That is how we are saved. God wants us to live lives of grace, lives that understand the grace that have been shown to us, and then grace that we so joyfully want to show to others. Let's bow in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to just ask that you would forgive us for times of just not relying upon your unmerited favor. Maybe it's times where we just feel like we don't deserve it. Or maybe it's times where we feel like we can earn it if we just do a little bit more. Oh God, just help us to have a biblical understanding of grace. For by grace we've been saved through faith. It's not at ourselves. It's not a result of works. Let us rest in that. Anchor our our feet firmly in the grace that you give us through Jesus Christ that we receive by faith. And then, Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to help us to show it to others. When people are easy to get along with, I'm happy to be gracious to them. There are days when I can be the the most miserly Scrooge when it comes to showing grace. And that's, that's not Christian at all. Lord, let us be people who believe and understand the doctrines of grace and then have the passion, the courage, and the strength to show them to other people. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.